We're reading from Genesis chapter 32, which can be found on page 32 in your church Bibles. Genesis chapter 32. And we continue the story of Jacob journeying home. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my God Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, by your Spirit, speak through your word to the glory of your Son. Amen. Um, we were thinking last week about uh, home. We have the PowerPoint up. And that longing that we all have for comfort solace, security, and a sense of belonging. We saw last week that God promises to bring his people home with abundant blessing. Through Jesus, he has dealt with the sin that has cast all of humanity into exile, and he will bring those who trust in Jesus back to himself. In the new creation, God's people will experience true comfort, solace, security, and a sense of belonging. We will be at home with the Lord Jesus and with one another for all eternity. And today's question is, while we're on the way there, um, what do God's homecoming people look like? Christians have varying expectations of the journey home. Some Christians think, well, God is on our side. Um, We should be going through the Christian life on our way to heaven, like we're in some kind of glorious homecoming victory parade. I believe that's Liverpool, is that right? I'm sorry if that's difficult to look at for some of you. Don't know what they'd won there, some kind of of tiddlywinks competition, I suppose. They look very pleased themselves. And if you were here last week, you'll have seen God making Jacob fabulously rich. And that while he's still in exile. 
And God may give us the blessing of material prosperity, even in this life. On the other hand, some Christians think, well, I'm still a terrible sinner, surrounded by other terrible sinners. I'm living in a world terribly broken by sin. And so until we get home, the Christian life is going to look like the shuffling steps of the walking wounded soldiers on their way home and the fight not even fully over. In our passage today, Jacob is blessed by God and he goes limping home with a dislocated hip. God will often graciously bless his people with suffering in this life. The truth is that God gives his people a mixture of suffering and success when it comes to our outward circumstances. But our passage today shows us something of what God is determined to do internally with every one of his homecoming people. And he accepts us just as we are. If there's one thing we learn from the whole of the Jacob story, it is that God saves bad people without any contribution from us. And yet, he is not content to leave us the way he finds us. And he's not content to bring Jacob home just as much a a liar and a trickster as when he went into exile. Um, He is determined to change the hearts and lives of his people as he brings them home. And in this passage, we'll see what God's homecoming people ought increasingly to look like internally. Here's where we are in Jacob's story. He tricked his elder brother Esau out of his birthright and out of God's blessing, and he's fled for his life from uh, down there in Canaan to Paddan Aram up there, where he was at least 20 years, and he is now on his way home to Canaan with his two wives, his 11 sons and a daughter, and a rather large collection of spotty sheep. Um, His sons may have been spotty too, we we, we just don't know. Um, His murderous brother Esau, meanwhile, has gone to live down here in Edom. The whole drama of this chapter comes from the looming showdown that we're expecting as the long-estranged brothers meet. They don't actually meet until chapter 33, which we'll look at next week. Our passage starts like this. Look down with me. Chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. These verses set the scene in two ways. Um, First, we're supposed to be reminded of chapter 28, when Jacob was just about to leave the promised land and met the angels of God. That that exact expression is used only there and here in the whole Old Testament. Um, Angels guard the borders of the promised land. They're sort of like passport control. Um, As Jacob meets these angels again, we're supposed to be thinking, is he coming back any different from the way he left? And maybe we're supposed to think, In fact, that it's not until Jacob has another more forceful encounter with some kind of angel at the end of this chapter that he's even allowed back into the land. Um, Second, this encounter encourages Jacob and us to think about what follows on both a human and a divine level. He calls the place Mahanaim, which means two camps, um, as the footnote says. I think the point is that this isn't just the place where he is camping, God has set up camp there too. 
Um, Jacob's worried about the looming meeting with his brother, but the one he's really going to be dealing with is God himself. uh, God meets with Jacob at the beginning and end of this chapter, and through those encounters, he continues to turn Jacob into the sort of person that he wants to make us all into on our way home. What do God's homecoming people look like? Well, first, um, they look like a people prayerfully dependent on God's promises. What is Jacob going to do about the threat of his brother? Well, first he takes action on the human level. Look at verse 3 with me. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favour in your sight. Um, Jacob tells his messengers exactly what to say. Um, They are tactfully not to mention the whole reason for fleeing in the first place. And they are tactfully to call Esau Jacob's lord and Jacob Esau's servant. Now, maybe that's just conventional or maybe it's cowardly groveling, but maybe it's the first hint that Jacob is coming home a slightly changed man. He had stolen Esau's birthright, usurping his position as the older brother. Perhaps now he's quietly acknowledging that by birth, Esau is his senior. And the messengers are to tell Esau that Jacob has got rich. And he's not yet actually sharing his wealth with his brother, but he seems to be trying to suggest that, well, he might. Don't hurt me because maybe I can do something for you. Uh, Off go the messengers, and then verse 6, and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. For some reason, Esau doesn't give them a message to take back, so they return bearing the simple news that Esau is on his way and that he's coming with 400 men, which is a standard number for a military unit. Yikes. As far as Jacob can see, this is not going well. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that's left will escape And Jacob divides his stuff into two camps. It's the only thing he can think of to at least limit his losses. In fact, it's the only thing he can think of to do on the human level, as it were. But then I guess he remembers that he's at Machanaim. Not only does he himself have two camps, um, God is camped in the area too. And so now he does something far more effective and powerful. He does the thing he probably should have done first. He does the thing that I often do only when I get to the absolute very bottom of the list of all of the other things I can possibly think of doing when I'm faced with a threat or a problem. I've sent the email, I've called the helpline, I've checked the place where I last remembered seeing it, I've talked it all through with a friend, 
I've done plenty of worrying. If that was the activity that could solve the problem, we'd be home dry. And then I say, well, I've done everything I can. All I can do now is pray. I had another preacher this week pointing out just what a dumb way of thinking that is. God is our loving Heavenly Father who loves to give good things to his children when they ask. No problem too small. He is also the creator of the universe. He thinks the dust of the nation, the, 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 the nations are like dust on a scale. He can just brush off. And he laughs derisively when kings of the earth gang up against him. And no problem too big. We can pray. Not all we can do is pray. We can pray. That is the effective thing we can do. And then all we can do is, well, send that email if you think that's going to help. I'm worrying definitely won't. Jacob's prayer um, is a good one. The request, the, um, the prayer of the prayer is in the middle, verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, uh, from the hand of Esau. Um, on either side of that, uh, you get an admission of his unworthiness and you get his helplessness. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, um, stick, not employees, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. I can't quite imagine the Jacob of chapter 28 praying like this. I'm on his way into exile. He made that rather ambiguous, not necessarily wrong, but somewhat conditional vow that if God treated him well, he'd give a tenth of anything he got from God back to him. God has indeed treated him well. And now Jacob realizes how little he deserves it. This is Jacob not bargaining, but just throwing himself unconditionally on God's grace. And at the beginning and end of the prayer, Jacob reminds God of his promise to him. Um, Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Verse 12, But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. And God hasn't forgotten what he said to Jacob, but Jacob is applying God's words to his particular situation. And God, you promised to do me me good and to multiply my offspring. As far as I can see, that means you need to prevent Esau from attacking me and killing my children. Please don't let him. I mean, it's good to pray God's words in the Bible back to him. And whether or not they are strictly promises, I find it helpful to um, pray through Psalms. Um, You just pick one, and you read a verse, and you pray about whatever's on your mind in response, and then you read the next verse, and pray something, and so on. So say you pick Psalm 20, and you read the first half of verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. 
And you pray, Lord, I've got a difficult meeting today. Please answer me in the day of trouble. And you read verse 2 and 3, and you get as far as verse 6, perhaps. And you see, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. And you say, Father, thank you that you saved your anointed son, Jesus, out of death to resurrection life. Please give that new life to my school friend who doesn't yet know you. doesn't matter whether you're understanding and applying every verse exactly right. I'm in favor of careful Bible study, but this is just a prompt to pray. God loves to hear us express our dependence on him in prayer. And especially when we pray in the light of the things he's said in his word. Those are prayers that he loves to answer. Um, He will answer this prayer of Jacob's, as we'll see. Jacob isn't the finished article, but he's returning home prayerfully dependent on God's promises. That is what God wants to make all his homecoming people like. A people prayerfully dependent on God's promises. And second, he wants to make them a people looking to God for their blessing and deliverance. And where once Jacob's concerns have been dominated by things on the human level, and he wants deliverance from his brother and the blessing that he can trick out of other people, and God is making him into someone whose human concerns are read in the light of things on the divine level. His chief concerns become blessing and deliverance from God. Here's Jacob's new plan for dealing with the threat of his brother. And now he's not just telling Esau about his wealth, he is actually sharing it. And verse 13, so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And this is a massively costly gift. Um, Ancient nations sent diplomatic gifts on this kind of scale to each other instead of going to war. Um, Jacob is not picking up a Toblerone at the airport, although that's expensive enough. Um, He is spending the international aid budget or or defence budget um, on this gift. And he staggers the gifts to increase the effect. Verse 16, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And uh, whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. Now, you might read this as a a cynical, even cowardly attempt to sort of buy off his brother. Of course, the immediate motivation for doing it is indeed um, fear. But at the same time, I think we're supposed to see God bringing Jacob home a changed man. And he fled, having stolen his brother's blessing. He is no longer that grabber. He is returning, willing to generously, very generously, share his blessing with his brother. 
I wonder if Jacob has realized that he did, in fact, wrong his brother. In fact, I wonder if he is beginning to realize that he has wronged God. Um, Here, the human level and the divine get kind of blurred as he talks about his hope of placating his brother's anger. He uses language normally used of offering sacrifices to God. It's halfway through verse 20, for he thought, I may appease him, propitiate him, turn away his anger with the presence, the offering that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And his offering to his brother is kind of an offering to God. In fact, I don't know what proportion of his wealth he has just given away to his brother, but maybe it's the tenth that on his way out of the land he'd vowed to give to God. And either way, his retinue must have noticeably shrunk, and now it disappears altogether. Verse 22, that same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else um, that he had. I'm not quite clear what side of the stream he is uh, left on. Uh, It's it's the little stream that goes across. Um, He sent away his whole very large family, and all the rest of his uh, presumably still extensive possessions in what must be a very large car, the Ford Jabbok. Um, no, they Ford the River Jabbok, and they go south, and then they head um, not south towards Esau, um, they head west towards safety in Canaan. They'll never outrun Esau, um, but that is the direction um, he sends them. And it leaves us with a very dramatic setting Jacob, all alone, in the dark, with the burbling brook in the background, uh, waiting. And there follows one of the oddest stories in the Bible. I'm, I'm not expecting to make it seem much less odd to you. Um, in fact, as God humbles Jacob in this passage, perhaps he wants to humble us through this passage He declines to answer Jacob's question in this passage. And he declines to answer all our questions about this passage. We're forced to acknowledge that he has chosen not to satisfy our curiosity about everything here. And the heart of the episode is actually pretty clear. This is the story of how Jacob, and therefore God's people, got a new name. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone... And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Who is this man? Later in the Bible, one of the prophets, Hosea, says that this was an angel. I mean, obviously, he looks like a man to Jacob. Um, he represents God himself sufficiently closely that by the end of the passage, Jacob is saying he's seen God face to face. And people have sometimes wondered if this is specifically God the Son, thousands of years before he's born as the baby Jesus. Um, To summarise the thinking I've done so far on that, I reckon probably not. And we're not told who initiates this wrestling match um, or how, but they get into it. And then verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
Um, In chapter 29, Jacob moved a big rock to impress a lady. So he's clearly a, a strong guy. But presumably this man could have defeated Jacob in any number of ways at any point. And he chooses not to, which means we get to discover that true to character, even when Jacob can't win, he will not give in. He is a born striver. And eventually the man brings the match to a close with a tap on the hip. They're no longer wrestling, but in some way Jacob apparently won't let the man go. Perhaps it's a more direct version of that conversation we have where I'm saying, well, I I mustn't keep you. And um, you're saying, well, just before you go, it might just be sort of verbally that he keeps him there. Or perhaps Jacob is physically clinging to the man's ankles like the toddler who doesn't want daddy to go to work. Um, Either way, from what he does next, Jacob seems to have um, become aware that he is dealing with someone who is more than just a man. Verse 26, then he, the man, said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And here's the heart of the scene, verse 27. And he, the man, said to him, what is your name? Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants Jacob to say it, to own up to his old identity one last time, as it were. And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. This is not a relationship of equals. The man won't even tell Jacob what his name is. But he has authority to give Jacob a new name. It's not that he's never called Jacob again in the story. He is. But from this point on, he has a fundamental new identity. His old identity was Jacob. It's a name that sounds a bit like the word heel and a bit like the word deceit. Jacob came out of the womb grabbing at the heel of his elder twin brother. And his life so far has been characterised by tricksiness. But this is a scene of new birth. I'm coming out of darkness in this watery place, into the light of day, and being given a name. And where his first birth was marked by struggling with his brother, this rebirth is marked by struggling with God. And so his new identity is Israel, a name that sounds a bit like he strives with God. Jacob is a striver, kind of by personality type. That hasn't changed. But something very significant has changed. He used to strive with men, his father, his brother, his father-in-law, in order to trick blessing in the form of wealth out of them. Actually, by God's mysterious grace, and it worked. He prevailed. But now he has striven directly with God for blessing. And by God's mysterious grace, that has worked too. And he has prevailed. Note that in this chapter, 
Being blessed by God hasn't meant getting any richer. That was, a, that was only ever an, an illustration of God's blessing, never the thing itself. Actually, now that he's willing to share his material wealth with others, he's getting poorer. Um, the main things he's got from God in this chapter are a new name and a limp. And be blessed by God is ultimately to be in a right relationship with him. God may illustrate um, his favour towards us by giving us wealth. He may illustrate our dependence on him by giving us a limp. And he gives Jacob both. But the point is that God is a much better place to look for blessing than people. Striving with the God who loves to bless us is better than striving against people. This is the name that his descendants will be known by ever after. The name Israel um, occurs 2,506 times in the Old Testament. I've had a fun week counting those. Um, Mostly, of course, it refers to the nation that will be made up of Jacob's descendants. This is the place that name first occurs. God's people are to be marked by looking to God, clinging to God, striving with God if necessary for blessing. Where do we look for blessing? It is easy to become dominated by concern for things on a human level and to grab for whatever we think we need from people. We've got to have that pay rise to make this lifestyle work. And we've got to have that relationship because they make me happy. Or drop that relationship because I'm not sure they do anymore. And God wants us to look to him for blessing and to let him decide what blessing we need. It might not be a bigger flock of spotty sheep. It might be a limp. Whose blessing dominates our concerns? And the kind we can get by striving with people or the kind we can get by striving with, clinging to God. And what kind of deliverance dominates our concerns? Look back to um, verse 11. I'll put it on the screen. Jacob prayed, "Um, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. And then the second half of verse 20, this is when he's sending that massive uh, gift to Esau. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Uh, Jacob was afraid to see Esau's face. And so he prayed to be delivered from him. Well, now after this wrestling match, verse 30, um, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means uh, face of God, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob was looking for deliverance from his human problems. And I'm not downplaying the seriousness of his human problems. He has a brother who, as far as he knows, is trying to kill him. And now he sees that what he really needed was deliverance from God himself. It's a reasonable expectation that when sinful people meet a holy God face to face, they are unlikely to survive the encounter. But God has graciously let him live. 
Jacob doesn't know what we know about that, that God can only overlook his sins because many years later, Jacob's offspring, Jesus, will die in his place for his sins. But he understands that he's received the deliverance that matters most, deliverance from God. And that puts in perspective his problems on a human level. And he is no clearer about how his meeting with his brother is going to go. And we'll see that next week. But he proclaims that in the most important sense, he's already been delivered And what kind of deliverance are we most concerned about for ourselves, um, for our children, for the people of Tunbridge Wells? We have plenty of things we'd like to be delivered from on a human level. Check your diary for the week ahead. It's right to pray for that deliverance. But God wants to make us those who care above all else about the forgiveness of sins so that we and the people of this parish and town and the world beyond can meet God face to face and live. God is bringing Jacob home a changed man. His experiences over the previous 20 years, and in particular his encounter with God in this chapter, um, has made him into someone whose human concerns are read in the light of divine concerns. God's homecoming people are a people looking to God for their blessing and deliverance. What do God's homecoming people look like? Jacob's presumably still wealthy, but look at him as he heads into a new day, having just been blessed by God. Verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat, the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The nation of Israel, the descendants of this man, Israel, are given an extra food law to commemorate the day they got their name. They don't eat this particular sinew, apparently. And Jacob had his own reminder. I guess the rest of his life, probably, he limped. It was a reminder to him every day that he had been humbled by God. He has been brought home as someone prayerfully dependent on God's promises and someone looking to God for his blessing and deliverance. God accepts us just as we are. He takes away our sin only through Jesus' death on the cross with no contribution from us and any imagined good works. And yet God is not content to leave us the way he finds us. Externally, we may be a mixture of success and suffering, but internally, he is making his homecoming people into a people prayerfully dependent on his promises through Jesus and a people looking to God for his blessing and deliverance through Jesus. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for dealing with Jacob uh, through these extraordinary events to turn him into the sort of person you want him to be. And we, please, uh, we pray that you would deal with us and to make us into the sort of people you want us to be. Help us to be increasingly dependent on you in prayer. Help us increasingly to look to you for the blessing and deliverance that count the most.
and to see the rest of our problems in life through that lens. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.